Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 223. This week, we talk with Steve Smith about writing better code. Love your job? Someone may be taking advantage of you. NASA is 3D printing. And your car knows when you gain weight. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week, we have Steve Smith, who goes by Ardalis Online. He's an experienced software developer and architect who acts as a force multiplier for dev teams. Steve and his team provide training, coaching, mentoring, and assessments. Uh, Steve is also a former U.S. Army combat engineer officer and Iraq war veteran, and has started and sold several businesses along with his wife and business partner, Dr. Michelle Smith. How's it going, Steve? Awesome. How are you guys doing today? Very good. So yeah, we there's there's lots of stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode, but I guess I would sum it up as just writing better code, <laughs> which I think is a great topic for uh, anybody to talk about. And Carl, talk about stickers. Yep. Uh, we're still sending out stickers. So if you want us to mail you some stickers, give us an email with stickers in the subject line and then your name and address in the body. If you go out to our Twitter page and you'll, uh, you'll see a ton of people who have been taking screenshots of the envelopes and sticker packages that they've been receiving. So I think this has uh, been something that's been pretty well, uh, uh, pretty successful. Yeah, it's amazing when when it requires like minimal effort on the person requesting and then we have to <laughs> do all the work. <laughs> it's very well received. <laughs> no, we love yep. it though. We like we like getting those stickers out there and definitely send in pictures too of where you're putting the stickers. Yep. And that leads us to our comment of the week, which was it came from a sticker request. So Sean Kim emailed us, said, Hi Carl and Jason, thank you for the MS Dev Show. Uh, fist bump emoji. May I trouble Carl to mail me some stickers via snail mail? And then the emoji with squinty eyes and tongue sticking out. I'd prefer you guys' headshots as a sticker with an autograph, though, like in like on your about page. And our about page is msdevshow.com slash about. And we actually do have some pretty decent headshots there. I'm not sure if I'd feel comfortable seeing that on somebody's laptop, though. <laughs> yeah, that would just be weird. But yeah. I, I do think it would be cool to have like a sticker somehow with our autographs on there. That might be interesting. Yeah, I so, have. So we'll have to think. We'll have to think about that. Yeah, I have Carl's photo as I blew it up as a poster and that's on my wall. better than michael dorn yeah (laughs) dorn me (laughs) yep all right so if you want to get mentioned on the show send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com comment on our website or on twitter we especially love those five-star itunes reviews yes we do okay so let's jump into the news so the first one here love your job someone may be taking advantage of you what i do love my job yeah it was kind of t- this article is talking about how when you love your job, uh, it's easier for people in, in in power and not necessarily doing this on purpose, but realizing that you have a passion. So you might not think twice about taking on extra responsibility or doing side tasks that aren't part of your main job as you know. These are things in the business that need to get done, but these are things that you're going to be doing a lot more of compared to your coworker who might be hating his job. Mm hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's funny whenever I was reading this, I would, I couldn't help but think of like, I, I sort of intentionally try to do the, do this, but I, I don't, <laughs> I wouldn't phrase it this way. So let me give you an example. Like we have somebody in our team who's good at machine learning and then you, Carl, you know, are really good at IOT. So when an IOT project comes in, I don't, I don't go to the guy who's good at ML and say, Hey, this is something you need to get better at. Take all these IOT projects and then come to you, Carl, and say, you need to get better at machine learning. So take all these ML projects. There are times when we do that whenever we want to upskill in a particular area. But um, there's definitely something to be said for taking advantage of somebody's strengths, you know, and building on that. Mm-hmm. But this sounded this sounded to be a little bit more negative to me where they were, like you said, overworking so- them. Yeah, I don't see this as maybe like in that aptitude where, you know, we each have like a passion for different 
a specific skill set, but somebody just has just a ton of passion in general versus somebody who might be equally, uh, you know, set on their skills, but just a little bit more, you know, less enthusiastic about it. So, it, you know, if I were a manager, who am I going to give the job to? The, the grumpy guy or the guy who's just going to say, yeah, I'll do that. The other thing it talked about was not just the kind of work, but just doing more work, like being expected to do work instead of spending time with your family or, or things like that. And I thought it was interesting that it also had to do with the study you talked about our perceptions of things where if we saw that someone was having to do a lot of work on weekends or things like that, that we might automatically assume that they were more passionate about their job and it wasn't just the other way around. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I saw that as well. So you can sort of make somebody look like they're passionate <laughs> by just get, pi- putting a pile of work in front of them. Okay. Um, any other comments on that? Should we move on? Mm-hmm. NASA's new UAV is now 80% 3D printed. Yeah, so just to clarify things, UAV is uh unmanned aerial vehicle. So this is kind of like a like a a more advanced drone. Yeah, this isn't like the space and, shuttle. No. And what what's interesting about this is part of the reason why it's being 3D printed is so that uh when they want to make an advancement, they can quickly iterate uh when they have when they want to tweak the wing design or another element of its, you know, physical aerodynamics and then they can just tweak it and get it out the door really quickly they don't have to send it off to some sort of fab fab shot mm-hmm. and you know it's it's really interesting seeing that you know we we hear about 3d printing happening all the time and we even know that there's industrial uh applications for this but hearing that nasa you know this giant government organization is using this technology to help become more agile in a very hardware centric uh space is really uh interesting to uh hear about yeah this is this is like a a perfect use case right because i remember you know i've you and i both worked in the the manufacturing industry historically and it's kind of interesting because if you design you know you sort of prototype uh, even back a decade ago they were prototyping on 3d printers you'd prototype like plastic cases for example and you'd iterate 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 and then then you'd lock it in And then they'd have to make some kind of mold or, you know, there's all different ways of like manufacturing these or you'd have to CNC it and you'd have to build like the right manufacturing equipment to or the right tools to actually do that. Um, So I think it is game changing if you can get the cost of like printing individual products uh, close to the same price of of what it is like per unit of a mold or something like that, because then if halfway through you're like, wait, 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 we just figured out, you know, Hey, if you put these two extra screw holes on here, it's, you know, so much better Then you can do that. It's just, it is way more agile. So I think they have, I think this was kind of low hanging fruit for them. It, I mean, this is something that's very expensive. Uh, these, these things that they're, that I think they're making. So the cost of 3d printing, it is nothing, but I mean, this is definitely, uh, the tip of the spear as, as to what, uh, you know, where 3d printing is going to have an effect in manufacturing. Uh, your car knows when you gain weight. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And it keeps being a jerk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a nice catchy little uh, title and Mm -hmm. it's true. There's tons of sensors in your car. When you compare them to a phone or something like that, you know, Cars are just way more complex and there's a lot more going on. In fact, I think this article says that something like, uh, your car can take like 25 gigs of hour or 25 gigs of data, either an hour or a day, which mm-hmm. either way, that's just a ton of data that it's yeah, generating. It says per hour. Per hour. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of data. And with, some of that data is obviously useful for tuning of the engine, tuning of the suspension, which is why you would want to know how much the car weighs. So your car can actually just tell just by knowing how often it gets used uh, and the different amounts of weights that it's carrying. It could be saying, hey, you're losing weight, you're gaining weight. And this is now information that the manufacturer of the vehicle has. And there's not just that, but when you pair your phone to it, it sucks in as much data that it can from there. And, you know, this article starts talking about who owns the data that your car is collecting Yeah, on, on your phone. You can turn off location services, but I don't see a way to do that on my vehicle. No, no. Um, in fact, in fact, they lock it down, but I thought it was interesting too, because they even know, um, they even know like how many kids you have, which makes a lot of sense. Cause you can extrapolate it. I do have to, I do have to complain though, whenever I, I really hate it, whenever we say we do this figure 25 gigabytes of data per hour, modern cars collect, 
that's total BS. They don't collect that data. <laughs> like that. No. It, it, well, it's it's collected at some point. It's not necessarily transmitted back. Yeah, but it's really simple though. Like think of think of how fast your wheels are spinning. Okay, that's an analog number. You can sample that a trillion times per second and make a terabyte of data per hour if you want. That doesn't make that data any better. So all it, all they really did was they like took the number of sensors and multiplied it times the refresh rate. Uh, you know. And that's just, that's really just showing like the resolution and the number of sensors they have. I just wanted to point that out that, that, that number is totally bogus because they're not, they're not sending it somewhere else. So right. Right. That, and your car doesn't yeah. have like a fiber connection to be able to send 25 gig per right. hour out. Right. And even its storage, I'm sure is quite limited. Like how many exactly. terabytes of storage does that car have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of that data is getting thrown away. It has to be. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just, it's just going over the CAN bus. And basically, if you have a device in there that can read it off the CAN bus at whatever rate, then then that's that's it. So I just I, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, and, and in addition, you know, we've worked with some uh, you know airline. Uh, yeah, that was the other one. There's uh, so places popular. that uh, you know, without getting too specifics, they can generate more data over the course of a flight than they can extract if they just hook up tons of hard drives directly to the plane in between flights. They can't get the data off that fast. So, I mean, there is tons of data, uh, but it's not all useful. But I think the interesting thing that this article is just trying to really point out is we're really still as an industry and an early point of uh, data privacy, uh, data domains, who owns this data. And this is something that as, you know, our industry early on maybe had a little bit more of an ethical understanding, or at least, you know, after the first couple of decades, I think there's new ethical um, topics that we haven't been addressing as as aggressively as we probably should have. One of the things that stood out to me was they were talking about who can do services on your car, who can do repairs. And, you know, currently pretty much any independent shop has what they need to do the repairs, but it wouldn't take much for the auto dealership to have an advantage because they could encrypt all the diagnostic codes in such a way that, you know, an independent would have to pay a hundred dollar fee or something to be able to access it. And they can't do the work unless they pay the fee. And so suddenly their prices go up relative to the dealership. And that's probably the simple example. Like I'm pretty sure that pretty in pretty quick order, there'd probably be a law like disallowing that maybe, maybe not. I think probably the, even the more, uh, the more likely situation. I mean, they understand the engine better than anybody. So they, they can now start to aggregate that data in such a way that it's useful to them. So they're not encrypting it. I mean, it's like, you can have all the same data that we use. I, I just, I know how this would go down, right? They would say that. And, and then lawmakers would be like, what the heck are we supposed to do? You know, like they, you know, all they're doing is, is, you know, they're running it through their formulas and these independent shops would just have no chance. I mean, they're just not, they're not big enough and they didn't design the engine. So they just, they would have to reverse engineer everything, which would be totally cost prohibitive. So yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, should we move on here? What do we got next? A decade of remote work. Yeah, we we've addressed like uh remote yep. working topics quite a few times on the show, partially because both of us work remotely. And I believe you do too as well, correct, Steve? That's right. I might do an on-site with a customer when I get started, just so we have some FaceTime, but ninety percent or more of what I do is just remote. Yep. So um there's a blog out there that uh comes from uh somebody who has done remote work in in the startup world for a decade and he's kind of looking back on that decade and just coming up with some hard and fast rules um or observations I should say mm-hmm. um and one of the things he says is either you're remote or you're not you know and and that's one thing that I I think I've definitely seen with uh you know people that I've worked with you know there's there's some people that take to it very easily and there's other people that really have a, a hard time, whether it's, you know, uh, paying attention to being, uh, as productive as they would be otherwise, whether it's distractions or it just sometimes just a personality conflict. You know, sometimes, you know, they don't realize how much of a people person they are, how much they need that, uh, in person interactions. Um, also depends upon com- uh, the company, uh, and, you might be a good fit for remote work, but maybe the company you're working for isn't. I know that uh, I've worked for some companies over the years that sometimes they, they're really good. And even at Microsoft, I think our, our team that we work on, Jason, is is really remote friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd say working with other teams at Microsoft, there's definitely a lot of engineering teams that definitely prefer those face-to-face interactions. 
Yeah. And I will say, I mean, we, last week we were actually all together as a team, uh, I guess minus one person. And we also found that like super beneficial, especially whenever, (laughs) whenever you are all remote. But one of the things like, uh, you actually segues into this, you know, we had that uh, offsite last week Mm -hmm. and they said having, you know, company or team summits to get together is really helpful as well, no matter how, how remote friendly you are. And it, it is good to just have those uh, interactions where sometimes you, you don't have those times to get to know somebody as well personally, uh, because you're just having that meeting and, you know, that meeting is all about business. And the next time you see them, it's another meeting, you know, having that time where you can have dinner or lunch with somebody, um, you know, really adds a lot to your working relationship. Yep. I mowed my lawn over lunch today, which is really handy because if it's going to rain, you know, in the evening, nobody else can mow and I'm able to go out there and do that. Yeah. So one of them that I wanted to jump down to is they said about the power of routines and habits. Mm-hmm. I would say being able to keep a routine is definitely very handy, but being able to break a routine is also very handy. So like you, uh, you know, taking your lunchtime off to, to do that, um, being able to run errands. I know there's some times where, um, it's not necessarily, I need to do something. It's not like I have a doctor's appointment or the grass needs to be lawn, but you know, it's like, I need a break and I have a package that needs to be delivered. I'm going to go drive 15 minutes to drop it off at the, you know, wherever I need to take it to, mm-hmm. you know, make working those into your schedule is also huge. But then when you have a team that's remote friendly, when you are flexing your time like that, being able to respond properly, when you see like an email come in at midnight, that is not necessarily meaning that your boss or the other person's a workaholic that's just trying to like outdo everybody. You know, sometime it might be, you know, Hey, maybe they slept in during the day cause they just needed a little personal time and they're working at night to, to make up for that time. They took a nap or mowed the lawn or, or whatever else it was. Mm-hmm. So that's huge as well. Yep. Um, you know, we only covered maybe about a third of this. Is there any other topics that either of you guys, cause we'll have the, link to this in the show notes. We don't have to cover it all, but yeah, I did think this was, you know, it gave an, another point that wasn't all cherry and roses, but wasn't necessarily negative as well. Yeah, no, I think this is pretty comprehensive and actually uh, looks like it was a pretty popular uh, hacker news item as well. So you can go out and read the comments there. So if you're interested in even more reading, uh, you can keep uh, you can keep going there. Oh, it's interesting. I'm just reading some through some of the comments. So people have different efficiency um, hacks in here, like this one here. Uh, working in batches really drove up my efficiency two and a half hours at a time, basically. So trying, you know, working really hard to get in the zone. So anyway, lots of lots of reading for all of our listeners there. Okay, and then the last one here is Faux Rogan. What the heck is this? So this is a website, it's fakejoerogan.com, and that is shows off the ability to use machine learning to entirely create audio that didn't exist before. So this was you know, trained upon uh, clips of the Joe Rogan podcast, and you know they generated audio that never existed before, and kind of put some uh, real and fake clips side by side for you. <laughs> did that work did that come through yep it came through oh that's pretty handy it's this new mixer it lets me do anything yeah so you play some side by side so you can try to you know see if you can tell what makes it fake or what makes it real okay so here's joe rogan um oh no you got to pick it i see okay uh, oh so you play it and then you pick it yeah let me play one here oh that's faux for sure yeah correct okay let me play the next one that's definitely joe rogan yeah, that's that had a little Correct. bit more depth, yep. and the pauses well, were a little more dynamic. So we had one one sample of each one. That is super cool. I've always wanted to play, the, play this computer audio <laughs> on the episode, and now we can. So that is pretty awesome. I'm just excited about the about the gear. This is cool, though. I mean, that was pretty good. I mean, if if that would have been if you would have played if that you, for me and not told if I had known that I was listening for like real or not, I wouldn't have known. It just sounded a tiny bit glitchy in that one spot, but yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, but I you know, I think one of the interesting things is is that this wasn't something that was done like, you know, we a couple of months ago we talked about how there was that uh, software, I think it was from Adobe that was able to recreate video. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's some highly tuned 
uh, software to do that. This was, you know, them uh, taking their custom built machine learning. This is people building this themselves. So even though that there are those, we know that this can be done at a high end thing, you know, we're starting to get that skill set where, you know, regular developers, maybe not me and you, Jason, but maybe more like Steve could uh, PCs together and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. replicate, you know, this fake Joe Rogan website ourselves. Yep. Very cool. Well, we don't have to do the podcast anymore. We can just make fake Carl and fake Jason. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, cool. <laughs> and then we just need fake guests and uh, and we're all set. We will have the first 100% fake podcast. I'm sure it's not the first. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, wouldn't that be wild if they're just like, hey, I know this is episode 62, but we just wanted to say this whole podcast has been fake. <laughs> we, we quit after episode 10. Yeah, exactly. That was just t- 10, 10 episodes of train, <laughs> five to test, and then the rest was just machine learning. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, let's talk to our, our guest, uh, Steve here, who is uh, actually from, uh, what is it, Dev Tips Weekly? Is that the name of the podcast? Weekly Dev Tips. Weekly Dev Tips. I knew it was some combination. My my AI has not been fully fully trained here. So tell me about this podcast. Uh, yeah, so I've got a, a podcast that's very, very short and focused. Uh, each episode is under 10 minutes, and it's just uh, covering a single tip that should be valuable to a developer. Most of them are by me, but I do have a number of guests. I'm still looking for more guests, so if you have... Uh, a tip that you'd like to share. If you know someone you'd love to have on the show, send me an email and I'll, I'll try and get them in. Oh, this is yeah, really cool. One thing that I, I really like about your podcast and that's different from a lot of the rest. So you've got somewhere in the realm of like 40 or 50 episodes right now. And like normally how I would go through a podcast like that is like, I would listen to the most recent and if it was really good, I'd just kind of like catch up on the rest as I can. But the way that you've structured these, they kind of build on each other. So really, instead of doing like the reverse chronological, uh, you know, I highly recommend if you want to like get into this podcast in particular, start at episode one. These are all evergreen topics and listen through them in order as they were released. Yeah, that's my recommendation, too. And it's pretty easy to set it up in your podcast uh, player, at least in iTunes, to say that your default is you want to do chronological order, not reverse. Cool. So, you know. Oh, <laughs> well, we go. we'll just play the we'll play the whole podcast in in here for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Carl. Uh, that broke my train of thought a little bit, but uh, you know, so you know these are you know smaller and little bits of chunks. So, what kind of information are you relaying each episode in the the weekly dev tips? Uh, it's it's all over the place. So, I talk about some career tips. I talk about uh, domain driven design principles, design patterns, solid principles, refactoring, anti patterns, code smells productivity tips, quotes. Uh, it, it's all over the place. And and like I said, I've got, a, a, I don't know, probably six or eight guests have been on the show at this point. Uh, and they all bring their own experience and, and tips as well. I love how bite-sized these are. Cause yeah, I mean, it's just, they're so, they're so focused. Uh, so that's really cool. Cause I can just pick one of these, you know, so I just recommend everybody go out to weeklydevtips.com and just take a look. Cause you might want to just pick like, there might be 10 that you're interested in and just play those 10. That's really cool. Yeah, and they're, yeah, so, they're nice because you can fit them in between your other podcasts yeah. on your commute. You know, they, they don't take very much time. Exactly. Yeah, so you're also a, a public speaker, and I'm noticing a trend here. When you said you're talking about design patterns, principles, clean architecture, and like ASP.NET Core stuff, those are the kinds of things that you speak about as well. So did, you know, was there a clean transition there or, or you know, yeah, tell it, us a little bit more about that. One of the things I try and do is take content that I already have and repurpose it for other other things. And this is actually a tip in itself. Uh, so instead of trying to reinvent the wheel every time I want to give a conference talk or I have a, a workshop I have to do for a client or I want to come up with a podcast idea, uh, I take some concept that I'm already talking about in one medium and try and apply it in another. So you know, recently, Weekly Dev Tips has gone on YouTube and it now has like visualizations that go along with mm. the uh, the episodes as well. Uh, but a lot of the ideas for the tips do come from talks that I've given, which, uh, by and large also coincide with Pluralsight courses that I have on refactoring and design patterns and DDD and solid. So, um, that, that kind of focus gives me, uh, some personal branding, I hope at least in, in these areas, uh, that kind of, you know, lead me to be someone that people associate with those topics. Okay. You know, it's kind of interesting. The, the, the work that I've been doing recently is really more in like the architecture space. So it's hard for me to tell if there's, 
as much of a focus on some of these things. Like the first thing I wanted to talk about was like design patterns, for example. Like I just hear less about it. Do you feel like less people are talking about it or or in my case is it is it just because I'm I'm in a little bit different space these days? I think there's some of both. I do feel like okay. it's not being talked about as much as it was uh, a few years ago. Uh, some of that might be the rise of a lot of other types of languages, and most of the classic design patterns from the 90s really only applied to object-oriented programming, and less so to functional and things like JavaScript, which are super popular now. Mm-hmm. But but there are also patterns in any er- arena. And, you know, that's one of the things, if you read the, the original design patterns book, they talk about the inspiration for the book came from uh, a previous book that was written about designing towns and like architecture and like how to lay out a town <laughs> and what some of the patterns were for buildings and, and where they should live, you know, where they should exist within a town. Um, and my most recent conference I did was at Stir Trek in Columbus, Ohio. And my topic was on cloud design patterns, uh, which I'd never done before, but that's, there's actually a pretty comprehensive uh, ebook you can find on, on Microsoft uh, that talks about cloud design patterns that relates more toward architectural uh, elements than, than just object oriented programming design. Okay. So, so as far as design patterns though, like, you know, for the people that are listening, I found that, that we tend, you know, we have a a good, there's always a good influx of beginners coming into our industry. Like, what do you think is, is like absolutely required as foundational knowledge to be writing code these days, as far as design patterns? Um, that's tough to answer. It's, it's really (laughs) depends on what kind of apps you're writing, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a a windows developer, uh, it's going to be different than if you're a web developer or mobile developer. And, and if you're doing cloud-based stuff, it might be different than if you're doing, you know, embedded systems. Uh, but the important thing, the first step I would say is to understand or acknowledge that there are design patterns. Those are a thing. And one of the things that is valuable about these patterns is that they have names. And so you can have a more elevated conversation with your colleagues uh, if you're able to use these names appropriately and understand what other people are using them, because you can you can uh, embed a whole lot of context into a couple of sentences if you talk about patterns than if you had to explain in detail all of the implementation of, of what that pattern would mean. Uh, and so that's like the first thing I would say is just like explore that these patterns exist and, and maybe dive into one or two of them just so you have a, an idea of the concept. That's actually a really good point because whenever I got started in the industry, right, I'm like, I don't need design patterns. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna write my code, and then I wrote a bunch of code, and I go to people, I'm like, hey, look at this thing that I just invented, and they're like, oh yeah, that's the, uh, that's the uh, events, you know, uh, event publisher pattern or like the singleton pattern or you know, like I'm just reinventing right. things that that already existed, and yep. and had I even just read about them a little bit, you know, it would have given me a little bit of a shortcut. And like you said, it could, it could have elevated that conversation a little bit and we could have talked about more meaningful things that past that. Yeah. The, the first step is take those unknown unknowns and turn them into known unknowns, right? right? You may not be an expert at these design patterns, but at least you know, they exist. So you know what to Google for if you, uh, if you need help. Yeah, that's a great point too. So what about anti-patterns? I know that's something that you talk about as well. When should, when should a developer start looking into those? Uh, well, Anti-patterns are interesting because they, they're kind of the same as design patterns, but what makes them an anti-pattern is that their intended goal uh, ends up causing more harm than good. Uh, and, and a lot of times anti-patterns are, are context-specific, right, where this, this approach or this pattern might work great in its intended circumstance, but uh, for whatever reason, people are using it in ways that it wasn't originally designed for, and, and now it's causing these consequences. Or you know maybe it worked great when it was first uh developed but you know the industry has shifted the application has changed you know we aren't we aren't where we were then and so now it's causing pain uh and so these anti-patterns also like design patterns they have names uh and you can discuss them and and describe them to one another and and you can be snarky and take any design pattern and call it an anti-pattern and and get a whole bunch of people riled up that's always fun um but the the main differentiator there is just that the the intended good use of some pattern uh, is is overshadowed by the negative consequences of using it. Yeah, interesting. I was just reading out here. I like this sentence here. Um, an anti-pattern is something that looks like a good idea, but which backfires badly when applied. <laughs> yep, exactly. I love that. I love that. That that happens in like real life too. Um, and then solid principles. So I do see the 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 book back there from uh, was it Robert C. Martin? <laughs> I see it on your bookshelf back there. Yep. yep. Um, which covers the the solid principles. And I've I you know historically I've been a huge pa- uh, fan of the solid principles. So it, has there has there been like 
do did the solid principles sort of look the same way that they did 10 years ago? Have they evolved at all? Um, like, are they still as important as ever? They're still important, and I don't think they've changed significantly. I think a lot more developers understand them, and a lot more frameworks uh, allow you to use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when they were first, you know, put in the solid arrangement, right? The principles themselves have been around for quite some time, but they didn't they didn't have the solid acronym until about fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, ASP.NET Web Forms was like the way you built things in the Microsoft stack for web, which is you know my background. And it was really hard to follow most of these these principles in that space. And that ultimately led to uh, ASP.NET MVC existing. And even then it was, you know, it was it was, you know, steps in the right direction. But it's not until we have ASP.NET Core where all these principles are really baked into the DNA of the whole stack. And so now it's like, you know, following solid principles when you're writing ASP.NET Core applications is like just that's just how you do it. Uh, and if you're not doing it that way, it, like it causes you pain that you're not doing it the way the framework intends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, other I, other things have changed, but solid hasn't really changed. Right. Yeah. Whenever you look at, like you said, .NET Core, I think somebody somebody probably coming in looking at some of the things they don't understand sort of the history of of how we got there. Because it's like, hey, wouldn't it be easier if you just did this? And it's almost an anti-pattern, right? You know, like if you, it's like, I wish I could put this piece of code in this file, but it's like, okay, well, that helps you from this perspective, but it's going to really hurt you from an overall architecture standpoint. Like things need to be broken up and put into the right places and because you're going to want certain extension points and, and things like that. Right. So that, yeah, and that and just a lot managing of dependencies is a huge thing in, in any application of significant size and solid really helps with that along with uh, clean architecture is another uh, related topic. Raygun provides full stack error, crash and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes. And dramatically improve the online experience of your users. Tell us a little bit more about clean architecture because that sounds like something that's just a little bit nebulous and maybe overly vague. <laughs> sure. So, so the specifics of it, uh, Uncle Bob has a book on clean architecture. He talks about his his uh, view on that. Uh, for me, it's it's very similar to this this architectural approach that's gone by other names in the past, like onion architecture or ports and adapters uh, or hexagonal architecture. So if you've heard of any of those, those are all basically in the same family as as onion uh, or sorry as clean architecture. Uh, and the idea is that you take the the D in solid, the dependency inversion principle, and you apply that to the architecture such that you have all your your business logic, your business rules, your domain model. If you're talking domain driven design, is at the center of the app. And all the other things in the app depend on it. And if you don't follow this approach, you follow a sort of a classic N-tier style uh, where you have like a UI layer that talks to a business layer, that talks to a data layer, that talks to a database. If you follow that approach, what ends up happening is your business rules are in that business layer. And they mm-hmm. know about and they call and they interact with that data layer, which ultimately talks to a database. And that results in this coupling uh, and this dependency that's going from the business layer to the data. And it makes it really hard for you to do unit testing, for you to evolve the business logic independent of the data store, uh, and, and a number of other disadvantages. When you flip that dependency around and you say, no, no, our data layer actually depends on the project or the assembly where all the business logic lives, right? And we're going to have abstractions that represent how we're going to do data access or how we're going to talk to an external service. Those are defined in that business uh, assembly, which I call the core in my applications. Um, that that frees up your ability to to shift around how you want to model the the problem dramatically, and it makes it way nicer to work with the system. In my experience, that's really interesting. That's how I always structured things, and I always uh, felt like I was going against the grain a little bit because I I remember I remember working in a project. It was actually a Silverlight project, and we had this multi tier architecture. And they had these, they, they kept redefining the data structures at every single layer. And I still remember they're like, Hey, we need this, uh, you know, this field added to the UI. 
<laughs> it's like, oh, that's a pretty simple change. Add it to the UI. Then you have to add it to the UI data structure. Then there was a communication layer. You had to add the field to the communication layer. And then you had to f- add the field to the backend layer. And then you had to add it to the database and then tell it how to actually translate that into the database layer. And I, I was just like, everybody, this is way, way, way too much pain. <laughs> you know, like I think we can break some other rules if we can just, if we can remove that kind of pain. Like I was always a huge fan of, and I don't know if this is, if this is cool now or not, you know, like I just, I wait for things to be cool. Um, <laughs> if it's cool to like, you know, have, you know, like you said, defi- like I would, I wanted to define my data structures and have those be uh, a core tenant that you know, everybody agrees like client server, whatever, they all reuse all that. And I actually built some stuff a couple of years ago that, that worked like that. And it was, it was incredible because I could add a field and the entire system would become aware of that new field. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're describing. To some extent. Yeah. Um, now it's not unusual for you to have different models at different layers, right. like a, a view model for a view that, that maybe takes some partial amount of of the, the fields that are on an entity in the domain model and, and, and exposes them like customized just for that view. So you do end up likely having some amount of mapping or, or having to add, you know, if you add a new field, you might have to add it to multiple different types. Yeah. Cause it might not uh, be a perfect match either. Right. It might not be a perfect right. mapping. I get that. Yeah. And you know, so t- tools like auto mapper can sometimes help uh, uh, generation code gen can certainly help in some cases. Uh, one thing that is nice is if you're using EF6 or EF core, where you've got this uh, code first model, mm-hmm. you don't have to have a separate type for the database schema representation, right? Cause EF can just go directly back and forth to your business model, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then basically the only models that you're dealing with tend to be your domain model, which is where all the business logic lives. And that's where you want to get as much testing as possible. And then for any individual view of your UI, you might have a, a, a separate DTO that is just what that view needs, right? right? And then, you know, different screens might have different amounts of data that they need. And so you'll have a custom DTO for each one in an ideal world. Right. Uh, a lot of times for small apps, uh, folks will cut corners on that and they'll just like say, Oh, I'll just take my entities and I'll just have those be the model that I send over the views. Um, and there's, that works if it's like a super small app with no, uh, <laughs> maybe not on the internet, for instance, so you don't have much of a worry about attackers. Uh, but there can actually be some security holes opened up if you accept your domain entities over the wire from the client, from, from the web, uh, because they can do things that you maybe didn't expect, like traverse navigation properties and set related entity properties, uh, as part of that, that, uh, wire protocol that you're exposing. Yeah. And before everybody writes us, I, I do want to be clear. Like that's definitely not what I'm suggesting. Your database entities shouldn't be the, what your forms are based on that. That was called Microsoft access. And that's not what I'm suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they definitely should be different. But I do feel your pain about having to touch multiple views uh, or multiple data structures sometimes when you do change. Yeah. And again, I think, I think two, I think two makes sense because your, your view is going to be, is absolutely going to you know, match maybe multiple data structures or whatever. Um, and, and if it's, if it's well-designed, you might be going through an API as well. And then you sort of have to think about that. I mean, you are creating an additional one additional layer, but then it's sort of understandable. Uh, but in the Silverlight app, it was crazy how many layers that we had. And we just, we were, we had all these objects that I think part of it was because I've talked about this before, like .NET wasn't .NET. You know, Silverlight, they're like, no, 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 Silverlight's.net. It's like, no, it's not because I can't create an object in Silverlight and now use it in.net. Like it's, it's different. It's in a right. different project and I can't, they, they are Before not. Before we had net standard. Yeah, exactly. They, they were, they were fun. Well, yeah, which, you know, didn't, um, um, which didn't affect Silverlight, obviously, because that was that was after that whole thing. So we had right we, right, right from the beginning, we just had a, 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 you know, incompatibility between those different layers and we had to map things. But anyway, um, the next thing uh, that I know you talk about is uh, is domain driven design, um, sure. and, and actually that might also fit in with what we're talking about right now. So, what is the current state of domain driven design? Uh, as far as I know, it's doing well. Uh, a lot of people are, are are following it and using it. It's it's got conferences that uh, are dedicated to it. Uh, okay. My workshops at, at conferences on DDD with ASP.NET Core are usually pretty well attended. So yeah, um, I think it's it's doing well. I haven't personally written any books or anything on it, so I can't tell you like how my book sales are doing. But uh, <laughs> my my plural site course on uh, DDD fundamentals that I did with Julie Lerman uh, mm-hmm. continues to be uh, popular, and it's 
think it's like five years old now. Uh, but, but we, we put a lot of time and effort into that course. And recently I updated the, uh, the samples to work in, uh, the latest version of Visual Studio. And, um, that's all out on GitHub now. So, you know, okay. go check it out. How would you describe that to, to a new user? I guess domain, I guess you would describe it design. through the plural site course. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, go, just go watch my course. Uh, Domain-driven design is it goes really hand in hand with that clean architecture approach because it it takes the idea that your database is the center of the application and and kind of flips that and says no no your your code that represents the real world behavior of this system that you're modeling mm-hmm. that's the center that's the most important thing and so we're going to create a model. Uh, of of the real world problem that we're that we're trying to you know automate and and make that be the the most important thing and we're going to put together patterns to make that easier to do we're going to structure the code in a way to make it easier to test we're going to use terminology like a ubiquitous language when we talk about it within our team and with stakeholders and with customers uh, so that there's less confusion about what we mean when we say user and they say client and someone else says account like no no we're going to pick one term that means that same conceptual thing so we're not translating uh, and then we're going to use that term everywhere from the database table to the entity to what we draw on the whiteboard when we talk about it. Uh, you know, things like that become, you know, the center of how you're going to ship the software. Yeah. I remember going through that process and, and literally having the business people in the room while we were defining it, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's key. You know, yeah. you need to have them bought into it. And, and one of the things we talked about early on in that course on Pluralsight is that domain driven design is not a panacea or a silver bullet. It's not something you want to use for every project. For simple projects where really all you're doing is exposing some data, uh, you know, let, letting a, a couple of users edit a database table that some other system relies on, let's say, you don't need domain-driven design for that. That's a simple CRUD, you know, create, read, update, delete type of app. And you can just code gen that with the tools that ship in Visual Studio and be done with it in a you know day and a half. Whereas domain-driven design would be a lot more overhead to try and model the system and, and use all these patterns and everything. It's really designed for complex, you know, business problems. Okay. Yeah. So the next three letter acronym is something that, you know, I, I think I learned to appreciate early on, but, you know, as I've gone through, you know, my career, I haven't, you know, I've seen people and, and companies embrace this at entirely different levels. And that's uh, test driven development. Um, you know, I, once it was introduced to me, I, I definitely noticed that when I was using that properly, that I would have far fewer defects in the code that I was writing. But, you know, as my career has progressed uh, a decade later, you know, some of the companies that I go into still aren't really doing much testing at all, where others have comprehensive test suites that are built into their CI CD process. You know, what is that spectrum, you know, something that's realistic to see out there? Or, you know, over the last decade, is there been a little bit um, better understanding of TDD and how to do that in a work uh, situation or scenario? I think it's it's definitely gotten a lot more acceptable. It's no longer crazy that you would talk about TDD uh, and and that you would have tests. Like you know, ten years ago, a lot of companies didn't see the value in tests. Like, why do I want to pay the developers to write half half their code as code that doesn't even add features? Right? It's just tests uh, or or whatever percentage you want to pick. Right? Uh, and and now most companies, I think, buy into the idea that, you know, at some point the code's going to get tested. It's going to get tested by your end users if we don't test it first. And fixing bugs that we ship to end users is way more expensive than fixing bugs that we capture, you know, during during our CI, CD process when the build server runs the tests. And and by the way, the, the computer's time is basically free when it's running those tests. Whereas if you're paying a developer to manually test or even, you know, testers that, that maybe have... Uh, you maybe offshore and maybe get a lower rate. They're still orders of magnitude more expensive than your computer that's already sitting there that can run all those tests in, in milliseconds. Um, so, so automated testing overall, I think, is much more acceptable. And, and TDD is, is a discipline that I think is much more widely used now. Yeah, I, I've always been of the opinion that it takes less time to, to write your code. You know, even if you, even if you fact, you know, ignore that testing later piece, like I know that testing early, I think everybody agrees is cheaper. Um, but I think, I think you can actually write your code faster whenever you get good at this. I don't know if you, is that something you agree with or not? I, I generally do. I think it yeah. depends on what kind of code you're writing. That's true. Uh, for me, okay. at least, right. If you're doing stuff that's got a lot of front end, like adjusting CSS to make something look right or, right. uh, or things like that, where like TDD isn't necessarily going to help you there. Um, but if you're doing like the business logic part, the core part of your, your domain model, 
then that is ripe for, for TDD. Uh, and that's where you can make sure that everything is rock solid as far as how your app does the, the guts of its business calculations. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the two things that tend to stop you when, when you're learning TDD, in, in my experience, and I've taught this to a number of people, uh, is first just understanding what to test. Like, where do I get started? What, do I, what should I even write a test for? And, and what does that look like? And, and just getting comfortable with the tools. And practicing, like, doing katas and things like that can really help you with that quite a bit. So, you know, if you, if you do a, a number of different katas that are, you know, just kind of helping you practice doing TDD, eventually you'll get that muscle memory where you just understand how to write a test and how to do it efficiently. And, you know, once you learn some of the testing features, like being able to do uh, inline data or, or test cases, depending on your, your framework, you can crank out a whole lot of tests with almost, you know, one line of code per test. And then the second thing that burns people is over time on their real application, they have this big suite of tests and maybe they didn't write them as well as they could have. And then the application changes somehow. And now it just in order to, to finish a refactoring of the app, you know, 200 tests just broke because they changed the interface of the main, you know, mm-hmm. system. And, and, you know, of course it's everything's in a big rush and they don't have time to fix those tests. So they just turn them all off and ignore them or, or turn off the test step in the build. And, and now they feel like they've just wasted all this time and maybe they never go back and fix them. Uh, and that, that happens when you just aren't maintaining the tests, you know, properly, uh, or, or you don't know certain patterns to follow with the test to make it so that they, they don't become overhead when the application changes direction. Yeah. That's usually another time when I, when I end up wasting time, right? Like you, you get to that end and, and it's like, Hey, I'm trying to convert this over. I don't have time to deal with this. So I'm going to turn off the tests. And then usually what ends up happening is I keep running the app and it keeps failing or, you know, crashing in some way. And then in the end, I was like, you know, had I slowed down and actually gotten those tests working, um, I probably would have gotten it done quicker. <laughs> right. Yep, exactly. So I, I think I was lucky when I was learning TDD. I actually had somebody who knew how to do it already, kind of, you know, mentor me in in how to kind of do TDD correctly. And I think for me, the thing that was interesting is as I learned to do TDD, the way that I wrote code changed is, you know, I, I really started implementing and taking to heart some of those solid and dry principles, uh, into my code. And the code that I was writing initially was just inherently more testable because I knew I was about to write a bunch of tests against it. So just knowing that those tests were coming, just made me prepare my code in, in a way that was different than it was before. So when it came time to write those tests, um, they just, they became easy to write and they, be, uh, they were useful because I was already thinking of you know, why and how I should be testing the app. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do I package up my logic? Cause it's frustrating today, like how many services or, or different frameworks or things like that do not give you a great way to test. And then, you know, um, in those cases, I mean, it's still the best thing you can do, I think, is just put everything into like a separate module that encompasses the logic of what you're trying to do. So you can test that and then you can just integrate with the untestable thing that you're trying to talk to. At least that's the strategy I've done. I don't know if you have any more modern opinions on it. (laughs) No, that's pretty much it. Create some kind of an abstraction point and interface, something that you can talk to that you control Mm -hmm. and then put the specific implementation details in their own class and try and limit it to just one class or, or at the most one project that knows about those implementation details so that you don't have that kind of spreading throughout your application and coupling your whole app to that detail. Yep. And then have you been, uh, have you, have you converted everything over to ASP.NET core? Um, all all the stuff I work on now is pretty much ASP.NET core. Yeah. I mean, I I have some, some work I do on, on actual migrations of, of client apps to it. So some Mm -hmm. of my clients are still on ASP.NET full framework and most of them have at least some new applications in core. Uh, but certainly not everybody's moved everything over to core, right? Especially if it's right, already right, right. working. Right? Yeah. I was just kind of curious. I mean, there's been, we covered build announcements around like .NET core three and then the, the merge, you know, for, for .NET core five. So I just wanted to kind of get your, your perspective as an outsider that's actually talking to real people, um, like how things are going in that space and, you know, should, should everybody, I mean, is that, is that the train everybody should get on is, is switching over to .NET core? Should they be sticking with what they have? I just wanted to get your take on that. My advice to my clients is that core is, is, you know, since probably 2.1, at least it's been ready for prime time in the enterprise. So 
Uh, there's, there's very little reason why you would start anything now on .NET full framework, in my opinion. Uh, you know, .NET Core is, is clearly where Microsoft is placing their bets and, and putting their engineering effort. Uh, and generally, as someone that, that leverages Microsoft products for, for my customers and for my own applications, I've always found it good to bet on what Microsoft is putting their, you know, investments <laughs> into. Uh, you know, early on, that was C sharp, uh, as the language to pick, even though I was coming from a VB background. You know, I, I bet on C sharp and, and here we are. That seems like it was a, it was a win. Uh, you know, Azure is another one that, you know, it's probably a good bet that Microsoft's, you know, going to leverage more stuff in Azure than, you know, IIS, you know, necessarily on your own Windows server. Um, that's not to say you can't run it that way, but, but the emphasis and the direction is clear that Azure is where it's at and, and core, .NET core is where it's at for, uh, for .NET, I think. Absolutely. So you also do mentoring. Can you tell us, uh, you know, not only how you do mentoring, but, you know, the, the way that you've maybe set up like a little side hustle around, uh, the way you per- in particularly do mentoring? Sure. So a lot of what I do with my, my corporate clients is, is essentially mentoring. It's, you know, doing, uh, either on-site training or, or doing like weekly or, or periodic, uh, go-to meeting or Zoom calls where, you know, we talk about their code and, and do code reviews and, and maybe I describe some pattern or practice. Uh, but I also do have a new thing that I started last year, uh, called DevBetter. And DevBetter is, is modeled after, uh, some other programs I've seen online. And it's basically a, a subscription based group that, you know, folks that want to improve that are seeking a mentor, uh, can join. And we meet weekly. We, we do a Q and A session where we, you know, anything you want to ask about your career or, or some technology or, or how to do test driven development or whatever I might have some insight into, uh, is fair game. Uh, but also if you're trying to build up your personal brand, or you're trying to find a job, uh, I have, you know, a decent following on Twitter. I, I can connect you with people. I know folks at Microsoft and influencers. You know, if you really want to speak at a conference or, or things like that, you know, I can't necessarily make that happen with the snap of my fingers, not Thanos. Uh, but, but I can, Spoilers. you know, I can, I can maybe, uh, you know, yeah, that, that's what, that's what he does is he helps people's careers. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I know people and, and, and networking is a big part of, uh, our industry and, and, every industry really. So, so I can help with that as well. Okay. Well, that's super cool. I mean, that's the best thing we do, right. Is help, help other people out. Of course. Yeah. And I've, I've realized that I only have so many hours in the day. So this allows me to focus on a group of people that are, are passionate and, and are all in the same boat of wanting to help one another uh, instead of kind of d- distributing my efforts solely on Twitter, where it's, you know, who knows whether you're really helping someone. You can't really get that in-depth conversation and folks can't share their private, uh, information as readily as they can in this, in this private group. Absolutely. Um, anything else you wanted to cover? I mean, like this seems like a pretty good foundation. I mean, the, the basically the, the topics that you cover on the podcast, you, you sort of add all those together. You put all those, those practices in the, to place. It's a lot of good patterns, practices, and architectures. And I mean, that's going to lead to reading better or writing better code. I mean, is there anything else that you suggest for the people that are listening? Uh, from me particularly, I mean, I've, I've got a bunch of Pluralsight videos that I, <laughs> I try to cover uh, some of these topics. Okay. Uh, one, one that we haven't mentioned, it's another uh, important skill to, to learn is pair programming. Uh, oh, so yeah. I did a, a course on Pluralsight with a buddy of mine, Brendan Enrich, on that uh, a couple of years ago. And so if you're if you're not someone who's tried pair programming and you think it might be interesting to to experiment with, you can check that course out and get some tips. Um, other than that, I think you know we've we've covered a lot of good stuff. Uh, you're right, in my opinion, this does provide a good foundation for writing good code. Um, it it kind of irks me a little bit when I see uh, books or or courses or things that purport to teach how to how to write C sharp code or JavaScript code or ASP.NET code, and they don't talk about or even give passing mention to how to write code that follows these principles or how to architect code. So it's not this tightly coupled ball of mud, right. you know, the, those things should be fundamental too, along with the language features and the syntax and the, you know, the basics you need to write programs. And I think too many developers don't even know that there's more to it than what the, you know, C sharp and 21 days book might have said. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think .NET does a, a little bit better job of, of guiding people. Cause it, it gives you that, that, that framework from the start that's a little bit more well structured. If you look at something like Node, they always like to show this example of like, here's one line of code and you're running a web server. <laughs> and then it's like, 
now have fun boys and girls. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> uh, what, like, what do I do now? And then, and then they'll always say, Oh, bring in express and you can write these lines of code. And it's always like one file. And then, and then the exercise left to the reader is like, figure out how to build your application, like removes pie from oven, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so at least, at least we have a little bit more structure in .NET core. Although one of the things we talked about at build was some of these, uh, sort of helpers, to make it so that you can you can write a .NET Core application. If you want to do like a script or if you want to do like a super basic API or web server in .NET Core, uh, you'll be able to do that in a little bit more of a, uh, you know, some as simple as you would do it in Node, but you just have to remember that with uh, simplicity, um, you know, just requires you to understand that as you get more complex, there's things that you have to do there. Right. Yeah, there's one more thing I should bring uh, attention to. Sure. There's some free resources uh, from Microsoft that I, I help with. Um, if you do a, a Google search for eShop on web, uh, okay. you'll find a GitHub repository that's a, a reference application for .NET Core with Azure. Uh, it doesn't have to use Azure. It's it's a you know .NET Core application. Uh, and there's a hundred and some page ebook that goes with that that talks through a lot of these principles and specifically talks about how to build these applications using ASP.NET Core. Cool. Uh, so that that's a free resource um, that I, I develop with Microsoft. And then there's a couple of related ones. There's a eShop on containers uh, that also has a, a, a more in-depth book that talks about how to do all the same stuff, but with microservices. And so it's it's got Docker containers and Kubernetes and uh, a little more complexity in terms of how to set up the environment and and build the same application as eShop on web, but now broken out into a microservices architecture. So uh, those are two things that are 100% free. You can download the code, run it yourself, uh, read the associated eBooks, and and really get a better understanding of how to build an architect sort of real world. Uh, apps using ASP.NET Core. This is super cool. Like I'm looking at the, at the containers one, and I, I yeah, I like how it's broken down in all the separate we, um, microservices. I think these are some great diagrams too, showing like where you can run these containers and different kinds of containers. And here's the architecture. This is awesome. And then all the code books. Wow, this is like super comprehensive. <laughs> Yeah, then, it's good stuff. More people should know about it. Yeah, exactly. And then on that, the one that you mentioned, we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, your name is right there on the uh, on the front of the book. So super cool. Because I wrote that book. Exactly. Uh, shop on <laughs> web, and uh, that that's the same app as the microservices one. But yeah. It's way simpler because it doesn't use microservices. <laughs> right. uh, and, and my recommendation is to start with the monolithic app. Uh, but design it well so that things are not all tightly coupled to one another. And then, you know, you can split it off into microservices if it needs it, right. uh, which, which it doesn't always. And I was going to say like taking that, mo- that quote unquote monolith, I don't think this is like a massive monolith, but taking that monolith and, and shipping that in a Docker container, I assume is actually pretty trivial uh, if it's just a ASP.NET application. So to your point, like that would probably be the next step, right? Like put it in a container if you need to, if you need to run it in that environment. And then after that, just split out the the services as you need them. Yep, um, exactly. Okay. Very cool. Okay. Uh, Carl, what do you have of the, for the app of the week? Uh, <clears throat> the app of the week that I have this week is called MDX deck. So if you're trying to build like a presentation or something where you'd want like a PowerPoint deck, but you're kind of sick of PowerPoint, or maybe you're trying to do this in a web friendly environment, uh, MDX deck is a way to build your PowerPoint slides in Markdown and then run it on a React backend. So it's built on the React JSX. Uh, components and it just merges your markdown right in and uh, allows you to flip it back and forth and do most of what you'd want to do in a PowerPoint, but on a react site. This is super cool. I like this. What I like about it is that you can in one text file. Well, first of all, it's nice because you can version control your PowerPoint, which I think is pretty cool or your presentation. I shouldn't call it a PowerPoint uh, like, you know, like Kleenex. Um, but you can, what I like about this too, is that you can see like the whole presentation in one file. I think that's pretty cool. At first I was thinking this was just showing me some code was actually showing me the markdown for three different slides, which I mm-hmm. think is, uh, I think is super cool because that's, you know, when I'm in PowerPoint, you know, I sort of, I always want to get the context of like the whole presentation. Um, but you know, it's like you get the, you get the slide view or you get the, um, or you get the multi-slide view or you get the slide view or you can view them side by side, but this is pretty cool putting in a text file. I like it, Carl. Um, okay, Steve, we have a question that we play on the show here. So the question of the week is, would you rather live with, is this the same as last week? No. Oh, okay. 
I don't This sounds familiar to me for some reason, but would you rather live with no electricity or without running water? This is a tough one for a dev. <laughs> uh, I think I'd have to say without running water. Yeah. If I have electricity, I can, I can probably create running water. I can, you know, I can go buy a, a water system <laughs> with a tank and a pump and I can create running yeah. water with electricity. Yeah. And water doesn't have to run, right? I mean, you can just like water by itself is fine. Yeah. <laughs> like you can yeah. drink non-running water. But, yeah. And I, I can have, you know, delivery of gallons of water brought to my door if I need to refill, you know, yeah. the, the, the showers and the toilets and whatever else, right? Or for cooking. Yeah. So. Well, my, yeah. my I need I have a, qu- a clarifying question, Carl. Um, <laughs> so, if, if I take a bottle and I pour it out, is that now running water? Does that count? Is that a loophole? No, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Okay. So you could put uh, you could put a water tower on your you know like one of those buckets they put it at the top of uh, buildings in big cities. You could put one of those in your house. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, so and if you also don't have hot water, hey, electricity fixes that too. Yeah. Yeah. So we've we've totally solved this problem, Carl. <laughs> so well, this is the first one we've actually had an answer on instead of just picking although the hold on let me play devil's advocate okay. if i had running water i oh. could use hydroelectricity to create electricity depending on how much and how much pressure i had right 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 right. yeah so but, I, I could go the other way too yeah but i i think that i think the premise of the question is that one is going to get shut off not that like all of a sudden you have an infinite supply of one or the other true true right right because water you know, is generally, ex- well, is expensive and, and well, the sewer, a lot of times it costs more, but anyway, that gets factored into to every gallon that you use. But sure. If you had a infinite supply of water, then yeah. Hydroelectric power, boom, solved either way. I, th- right. I feel, I feel like we've solved this question. Yeah. Like if I'm stuck on an Island all by myself and I have a choice of having water or electricity, I'm going to pick water. But, but if that's not the, the scenario, then right. Right. Uh, and I, I can still get water at the store right? That's exactly. clean and drinkable. Then, then I'll, I'll take electricity. Exactly. Okay. Steve, where can people find you? Uh, are you on the, are you on the Island? <laughs> uh, I, I am available online as our Dallas, uh, okay. because, uh, Steve Smith is, is shockingly difficult to find as a username on various really? social media platforms. Really? Uh, so yeah, just look for a R D a L I S, uh, anywhere you're looking for, for people online and, and you may find me there. Okay, perfect. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Techie. So Steve, thank you for coming on here and talking to us about a variety of topics, but um, so many different topics uh, to help us write some better code. So thank you. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me on the show. 